Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Email live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you is another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. My co-host joining me, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good afternoon from a very gray South Dakota. Happy 4th of July, Steve. Welcome to America. Yeah, you know, a bunch of fireworks went off yesterday. That was good. That's American. great weather yesterday. It's also American. (laughs) But today, uh, not so much. It rained and uh, was grumpy all day today. It's still American and there's going to be fireworks later at night. Or maybe laser shows, depending on what your state has planned. We'll see what happens. For the meantime, let's dig into some feedback. Absolutely. Our first email comes in from Mike. Mike writes in and says, greetings from North Georgia. I work in IT for a company and I'm the one responsible for upgrading users' computers and disposing of the old ones. I hate the idea of a perfectly usable computer going into the recycling bin. So I asked and was given permission to donate or give some of them away to people who need a computer and will put it to good use as long as I remove and destroy the hard drive. While it's fairly easy to find a home for a five-year-old laptop, the same cannot be said for a desktop of that age. Many of the less-than-technically-minded people I know don't understand the concept of a computer that you have to hook up to, a keyboard and a mouse and a monitor. The problem is, I have about eight of these right now and have more before long. I'm tired of storing them in my tiny office and I'm about ready to go the recycling route. I've heard you suggest that people get older desktops for experimenting in their home labs and thought I would offer them to your listeners. I don't feel comfortable selling them because I was told I could donate or give them away and I wouldn't want to be accused of abusing the trust that my own financial gain. To that end, I thought I'd offer them up, the person willing to pay the shipping, and I would box it and send it to them. Let them know if you think this might be a good idea. I could just list the machine and take first come, first served. I would box up the computer Provide the dimensions and the weight to the new owner could mail me a prepaid shipping label. They all have Windows 10 and the license would still activate if they were inclined to do so. But This would be go against the show dedicated to Linux and open source. They could be put to something fun and interesting. If you don't think this would be a good idea, please let me know and I'll just carry them over to Staples and recycle them. Keep up the great work on the show. Kind regards, Mike. So, Steve, what do you think? You think people would like some free computers? So there's definitely that. Um, I would be surprised if in the area there there are not some sort of organizations um, that would take them. So oh, here in my city, there are um, there's a group of old gentlemen that take old uh, computers and they essentially scalp them for parts and then put them together and give them to people in need. So you know, you give them a tower that just is minus a hard drive. They have hard drives kicking around and and stuff like that. So there's there's plenty of places like that. I know that uh, organizations like that have come to Southeast Linux Linux Fest in the past and mm-hmm. uh, talked about that sort of stuff. So as as generous as it is to reach out to the audience, if the purpose of this is to help your community, I would see what is available in the, you know, in the not so uh, distant area that you might contribute them to. That's a great thought. You know, if you can give them to your local city, you can do that or find somebody It also occurs to me, though, you know, if you don't have a lot of time or, you know, your resource constraint, you're saying, hey, they're just I took them out of there. I'd be happy to, like, pair them up with an owner, but I don't have time to become my own charity organization. You also could look at places like FreeGeek. So FreeGeek, you can learn more at FreeGeek.org. And essentially what they do is they are a 501c3 organization to sustainably reuse technology, enable digital access uh, to provide education and a community that empowers people to realize their potential. There's plenty of people that don't have resources but want to be involved in technology and that technology divide separates them. And so Free Geek is on a mission to stop that. And so they uh, will take donations and help reprocess them and then they will sell them. 
to people that need a, a deal. But I would say, I would do this. I would absolutely open this up to our audience. If you write in live at asknoahshow.com, if you're interested in one of these machines, we would even help facilitate some of this, right? And so if you have somebody who say, hey, I'd be interested, I could really use a computer for a backup server or my first file server or my first home lab, but maybe I don't have the money for shipping or something like that. You know, maybe we could chip in and, and maybe facilitate a smooth transaction. So maybe give that a shot, Mike, reach out to somebody local and see if there's anybody there in your community that could do that. If that doesn't work, reach back out to us. And uh, meanwhile, we'll continue to collect responses from you, the listener, right in live at asknoahshow.com if Mike can help you with a new computer. Our second email comes in from Augustine. Augustine writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks for the show. And also thanks for the episode about ham radio in Linux Unplugged. A couple of weeks ago, I started learning my ham license here in Germany. I don't have much free time to learn the two book for the exam around will take four to five months. Until I get my own license, I was thinking of buying an RTL SDR dongle with a dipole antenna kit so I can start playing around and listening to hams in my area. I had also tried to receive some signals from ESA LED SAT Digipeter Challenge. I think it could be a nice toy while preparing for the tests and maybe after I get my license, I could use it as a scanner to check where people are talking. What do you think? For some context, I live in an apartment with no balcony, so a real antenna won't be an option for me. Kind regards. Augustine. Steve, you ever, like, is the ham radio thing ever slightly bitten you? No, I can't say that I've ever gotten into it. It's been one of those things that, like, I, uh, I have a hard enough time finding people that I'm interested to talk to in, in my local vicinity. <laughs> and the idea of hopping on the airwaves to, to do so is, is not been something I'm interested from the, the, the prepper side of me says, this is a good idea. Yeah. And it would be really good for me to take the, the training to be able to know and understand the electronics better. Um, because I understand like as you move up as a ham, that's kind of what's required to, to move your certification around, mm -hmm. whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I've never actually opened the door. Absolutely. So yeah, there's definitely the technical competency side. The other thing is you want to talk about self-hosting and open source. I mean, it doesn't get any more self-hosted and open source than I'm literally going to build the entire thing from the ground up and I will only rely on the thing that I built. It's not I'll rely on the thing that I built plus the internet connection, right? It's I will only rely on the thing that I built. So I, I commend you, Augustine, for taking this on. You know, to answer your question directly, yes, I think it's a fantastic idea to go listen to other operators. One of the things that you'll pick up, it, it, I'm less sensitive to it now in my 30s than I was back when I was a young whippersnapper, so to speak, and, and thought I knew everything. Um, but when you hear new people come onto the air, sometimes it can be a bit frustrating because they don't understand or they haven't learned or they haven't matured yet. And so they come on and they're stepping on people and they don't care if somebody's having a conversation. They're just excited because they can power up their radio and they finally get to talk. And so if, if you're talking, you know, you can be having a conversation with another person about, uh, you know, left-handed midgets in Antarctica. And, you know, all of a sudden this new guy keys in and, 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 and starts talking about the latest microphone that he just bought. And it's like, hello, we're having a conversation there, you know? And, and so, but over time, I've learned to embrace the enthusiasm that comes with the next generation and this idea of, I want to get on, I just want to talk right now. I'll also say that, you know, digital modes have helped a lot with that because if you have this drive to, I just want to make a contact, great, go to FT8. The computer will make a contact, you'll get your satisfaction, and the rest of us that want to have a conversation can continue to have a conversation. So listening gets you all of that listening helps you understand and kind of takes the edge off so it doesn't feel so new when it's new and you have the opportunity to kind of listen to what does conversation sound like how do two people that are just casually going about their day and you can pick up some of the technical bits and bobs as, as you go along right oftentimes the topic of conversation if it's not the weather it's our gear right what are you running for an antenna what are you running for a for an amplifier what are you running for a rig how much power are you pushing out you know those sorts of things and so being able to learn those kinds of things will kind of help you dial in what you want to do. The other thing, and if you heard the Linux Unplugged segment, then you're undoubtedly familiar with this, remotehamradio.com. I can't believe in a, in a conversation that I'm going to talk about the virtues of self-hosting and doing all the rest of it that I would include cloud-based ham radio. But alas, when you live inside of an apartment and it isn't possible and your neighbors might throw a fit if you said, I'm going to take a 200-foot tower and I'm going to set it outside my backyard and put a 60-foot dipole or a 60-foot uh, Yagi on it. I'm guessing 
you might have some people upset with you. And so remotehamradio.com is a, is a way that you can operate and get into ham radio and participate in it without having to put equipment on your house. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't include this. For me, the, the, the software-defined receivers are just not exciting. And I... That's not to discourage you, and that's not to discourage anybody else. If you want to do that, I think it's, a again, great way to, to put your foot through the door. But it's just, if I can't talk on it, if I can't transmit, it's like a spectator sport. It's like going to a sporting event where I want to go play the game. I want to play. And so if I can't transmit, then I, I always feel like it's like one hand tied behind my back. Our third email comes in from Adam. Adam writes in and says, greetings, Noah and Steve. I have a remote desktop question. I need a remote desktop solution that allows me to connect to an existing user session in KDE and also connects the display manager when no user is currently logged in. X11 VNC has worked great for me for this purpose, but X11 VNC isn't working when I update from the Fedora Kena Knight 37 to 38. Currently, I've just rolled back to Fedora 37, but even this is not a good long-term solution once support for 37 runs out. Also, I'll need to switch over to Wayland at some point is there any remote desktop solution for KDE on Wayland that allows me to log in to an existing user session and log in via the display manager when needed? I can't find the solution for this. Thanks, Adam. So, Steve, what would you do if you woke up in Adam's shoes? So, it's an imperfect solution. I dislike using a, a service, but sometimes that's the best thing that we've got. So, hmm. on X, uh, I know he specifically talked about Wayland. Uh, if you're still using Xorg, I like Rust Desk. Um, I like that a lot. That's open source and you can self-host it and all the rest of it. And <clears throat> it works really well. Unfortunately, it doesn't really work on Wayland that well uh, or at all, I think. So recently I've started using something called AnyDesk. Now, this is a half-hearted recommendation because the software works well. Um, it does exactly what, what you need it to do. So it will help you log in if the user session is locked and so on. Um, it works on the, the idea of like everybody gets their own individual number and you can kind of just call up the computer. That obviously means that your computer is connecting out to a remote server in order for that server to help you make that connection. So there's a downside there. It's also not open source, uh, but it, it is in Flathub. And for me and what I because I've started to remotely manage things like endless OS, which need to have their stuff installed via Flatpak. Um, it has fit the bill. It does its job. It works well. Uh, it works well on very bad bandwidth, but again, the, the, it's a half-hearted recommendation just because it's, it's not open source and you can't self-host it. Okay. I'll split the difference with yourself, with your half-hearted recommendation and I'll put, put a plug in there for simple help. So simple help, proprietary so not great however at least you can self-host it so maybe it splits the difference the other direction and so it, it's going to use it's going to broker the connection so it's going to do kind of what any desk is doing however you're hosting the server part or the client part and the thing that at least how i put myself to sleep at night is i lay down and i remind myself that even though it's proprietary licensed code that i have no control over and really don't know what it's doing underneath at the end of the day at least if the company goes away tomorrow i'll still be able to use it because the server is running on my computer and it just I dot slash start server and it runs and now simple help is running and I connect things to it and then I'm able to remote into them works with Wayland works with the uh, Xorg works with Mac OS works with Windows works with all the platforms and so it, it can be a nice go-to I know uh, a friend of the show Chris DeLuca is using it to manage thousands of machines across the state of West Virginia for the school district it seems to work pretty well for him as well so if you're looking for an open source solution, we are too. But in the meantime, maybe those are some, maybe those are some, uh, as Steve put, half-hearted solutions that you can get behind for the time being. What's it cost to run Simple Help? Two hundred ninety-nine dollars one-time fee, and then you and the license is for life. So once you buy the license, you have one license or one simultaneous connection. I guess is more accurate uh, for life, and then you can pay at a discounted fee. So you can so that that licenses you for that server version, right? And then you can go back and say like, I want the newest one. And so then you know maybe they charge you 150 bucks or something, and then you get the the newest version. But you don't have to do that. You can just stick with one. Um, 
the other thing that we've done is we've just we've kind of split the difference and said, okay, well, when we when we're coming up on renewal time, we'll just buy a few more simple uh, concurrent licenses, and then that way we extend our service contracts so and get the latest version of the server, but also have more simultaneous connections, which is kind of a Ponzi scheme, I guess, but <laughs> it works. <laughs> From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of July 2nd, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Firefox 115 ESR has been released and it adds new hardware video decoding for Intel GPUs on Linux. The independent distribution Chaos has announced its 2023.06 release with the Linux 6.3 kernel and the latest KDE Plasma. The Peppermint OS team has released new ISO images based on Debian 12 Bookworm. And Nitrix 2.9, codenamed New, is now available to download. The GNU Linux Libre team has announced the release and availability of the GNU Linux Libre 6.4 kernel for those who seek 100% freedom for their GNU Linux system. Linux 6.5 is adding initial support for USB 4 v2, and Proton AG, the developer behind the Proton privacy-focused services, has released Proton Pass, a new open-source password manager. The latest Steam Deck hardware and software survey for June 2023 is out, and it shows that nearly 40% of all Linux gamers on Steam are using a Steam Deck. Canonical has unveiled a significant redesign of their Snapcraft I.O. website. Red Hat has announced up to four additional years of extended lifecycle support for Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7. And the German open source vendor SUSE says it will not be making any changes to its policy on source code access, emphasizing that the freedom to access, modify, and distribute software should remain open to all. In hardware news, the PicoPad is a new open source gamepad based on the Raspberry Pi Pico. And yes, someone has already gotten Doom running on it. And Linux-focused vendor System76 has released new PC case designs. In security news, ransomware gang Akira has updated its operation to include an encryptor that targets VMware ESXi virtual machines running on Linux. Researchers are suggesting that Akira is the latest in a trend of cybersecurity criminals targeting the Linux operating system, heralding an oncoming wave of ransomware attacks. This is your reminder. Have you made and tested your backups recently? Canonical has released new Linux security updates for all supported Ubuntu releases to address three security vulnerabilities discovered and reported by various security researchers. And lastly, in AI news, Stability AI has recently announced Stable LM, their first open source LLM under a CC by SA 4.0 license, and have also teased some major upcoming updates to Stable Diffusion. You know, communication has been it's like the cornerstone of human connection. And so it's one of the things that has gotten me really drug in. I've been looking for a communication platform for really for years and I bounced from one thing to the other and I've never really been happy. And when uh, Matrix kind of came to save the day for Southeast Linux Fest back in the COVID era where we had the ability to do things remotely and I, it was the first open source project that I followed kind of from the ground up. So they had just left beta and it was one of those things where every morning I would log on to the GitHub page and I would look and see what are the issues? What are the discussions? How does software development work? And I've kind of been able to follow that and it's been really kind of a fun pet project. Now, on the other side, I, it's, I have Steve who has, for, for lack of a better way to phrase this, has not seen a compelling reason to join me on the dark side. And thus all of the community pushing back on him has really done nothing more than to, how shall I say this, Steve? Anger the lion. <laughs> and, and cement the position, right? So I finally feel like I have the first real crack at this nut, and and I'm I'm very excited about this. So it really comes down to me for th for three things. One is long term connection with people. I'm sick and tired of jumping platforms every five years. Every time we do that, we lose people, and it absolutely crushes me. And there there are people that I am friends with that I have literally not talked to in in a few years because the platform that we were using to communicate either went away or something became hostile to one of the parties involved. So we can't get to each other anymore, and that, that's frustrating. The, the, the second thing is, if I can't host it, then I have absolutely no control over it, and so I don't feel like I can rely on it. So what I'm looking for is long-term connection with people and easy access from FOSS solutions so as they make the move to things like Graffini OS 
I'm not fighting an uphill battle. I'm working with platforms and systems that want to work with me. And then the third thing, and this is a big one, easy on-ramp for other people. I cannot describe the horror stories I have for as many good things as I have to say about Linux and, Ma or excuse me, Element and Matrix and all the rest of it. I cannot describe the number of horror stories I have from family members who have tried to join me on this journey and have like the train has not just crashed, but it's like gone off the rails and exploded into a million pieces kind of crashed. It was just a bad experience. And part of that is because of the onboarding. It's a very technical solution and it requires a very technical crowd to be able to leverage it. Well, that is all changing because I got my Beeper invite. If you haven't heard of Beeper, I highly recommend you go over to Beeper.com and check it out. Beeper is free to use and has optional paid subscriptions called Beeper Plus, and that includes additional features, things like larger chat history, backup, access to unlimited network connections, and more. The whole idea here is Beeper takes what was Matrix, and it's Matrix underneath the hood, but you wouldn't know it. When you sign in, it has a beautiful web, it has a beautiful UI inside of the client that immediately walks you through creating the account. My favorite thing was when you get to setting up the encryption. This has been a thing that has burned a lot of people, friends and family that don't understand the technical implications. They go, yeah, 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 encryption, I got it. Next, 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 right? And then they go to restore their phone and they don't realize that, oh, that when we said it was secure and the private keys were only on your device, it meant that only that device had the keys and so if you've destroyed that device or lost that device and didn't have a way to back up those keys then you've lost access to those encrypted messages and that's not element malfunctioning that's just element doing its job by keeping its encrypted message encrypted but the problem is it's confusing to new people so beeper solves that by being absolutely obnoxious about walking you through. Here's what encryption is. Save this key. Are you sure you save the key? Okay, prove to me that you save this key because it's so vitally important for you to be able to get access back to your messages. So they walk you through that entire process, but that isn't Beeper silver lining. The silver lining is the ability to connect with everybody and everything. Remember I said that my real purpose here is to be able to connect with other people and maintain human connection? Well, Sometimes you have to go to where the people are and where the people are is on Signal and on Telegram and Facebook and Twitter. And what's interesting is I hear people all the time. They'll say like, well, I don't want to use that platform or that platform or this one or that. But the reality is they all have ups and downs. And so Beeper allows you to bridge WhatsApp, Instagram, iMessage, Twitter, SMS, Google Chat, LinkedIn, Facebook, Signal, Telegram, Slack, and Discord. And I, for the purpose of testing Beeper, bridged all of the things to include iMessage. I didn't, I'm not an iPhone user and I don't have, I don't use iMessage for anything, but it turns out you can go to apple.com, create an account, and you can bridge it to uh, beeper and you're able to speak with people on iMessage even without having an Apple device, which is huge. And I would imagine if you do use iMessage and you wanted the ability to get to it from your Windows Mac or Windows Linux PC or Android device, Beeper enables you to do this. So when they first launched, the idea, Steve, was that they were going to charge to have this, which makes sense because, you know, it costs money to do good work. But now they've changed their model and they're allowing you to sign up for free and you're able to bridge all of your chats and be to where all of the people are, but for no money. And then you can pay if you want extra features. What do you think? Do we finally have you sold? I mean, I put myself on the list just because it's basically like Pigeon for your phone. And yes. I was always a big fan of Pigeon. Okay. So it's it's close to you, not necessarily because you finally get the opportunity to speak the language of Matrix. That hasn't really <laughs> that hasn't really changed in your boat. But it gives you access to for like eight I, I was looking up statistics. So 80% of people apparently have, if they're choosing a social media platform or they're choosing a communication platform, it's Facebook Messenger. That's 80 plus percent of people, that, that's their chosen uh, platform. You and I are not people that would be quick to want to throw Facebook Messenger on our phones and our laptops and everything else. Uh, does this maybe serve as kind of a barrier so that you can achieve what you wanted, which, I mean, your goal was, I just want the lowest friction for the largest network of people. Now we're able to do that in uh, in a self-hosted, self-respecting or freedom-respecting kind of way. And also it just happens to be powered by Matrix. Is that more palatable? I mean, it doesn't really matter. Like I said, the, for me, the issue has always been that 
it's another network effect stumbling block, right? Mm. It took forever to get people on Telegram and off of Facebook. And, you know, <clears throat> that was that was a battle that I was willing to fight because I was just absolutely not going to have a Facebook account. Mm -hmm. uh, however, now that everybody's been on Telegram for however long they've been on, the idea of going and being like, oh, well, you know, you should switch to Matrix. And the answer is, why? Mm. And... To that, I have no answer. <laughs> like, so the so the terms of the terms of service for Facebook were unacceptable to you, but the terms of Telegram are acceptable to you. So you so that that's where that kind of cliff kind of changes, where the where it's there's the most amount of people are on Facebook Messenger, but the but this is kind of a nice happy ground because it's just a thing that we can s sign up for and everybody can use, and there aren't egregious terms of service. Am I following that? Yeah, essentially, it's. It's choosing who you're giving your data to. And, you know, at, at some point, in order to get the mass adoption that, um, let me rephrase that, in order to be a part of a network effect, it's not going to be, it's not going to be matrix. Hmm. Everything else is just too well entrenched. And so you pick your poison at some point. And uh, Telegram, at the time that we joined it, was the least repugnant out of the options that we thought we might be able to migrate people to. Well, I hope uh, I hope that Beeper throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in that from the standpoint that I would agree with you. Uh, if if you had to go through what what we currently have to go through to get onboarded into Element, it would be hard for that to become a predominant prevailing platform. But I will tell you, all you have to do, go to Beeper.com, enter in your email address. They send you an invite. You use that email. You can sign in. You don't have to have a phone number in order to use the account. You don't have to pay anything to use the account. The onboarding is as easy as Signal or Telegram or WhatsApp. It's actually easier, as I went through the process, of signing up for Facebook. Easier than doing that because they don't require any of the verification authentication stuff. And at the end of the process, you'll be able to speak to everybody. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-664. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Tony joins us in our interactive mumble room. Welcome in, sir. Hi. Hi, Noah. Hi, Steve. Uh, you guys can hear me? We can. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. I had a um, question for you guys. Uh, I, I guess I've been in Linux for a while, but not super, super in it. Um, so when the whole system D thing happened, I guess I didn't really understand what that meant and why so many people didn't like it and um and why to this day people don't like it i i, I use it it seems okay to me and mm -hmm. uh i don't know if you guys have i was just curious if you guys had any knowledge on that can you do system d in 30 seconds or less Steve? <laughs> uh so there's a little bit of history there the history is that when linux starts up it needs to have a bunch of things start processes for it and that's called an init system there's been a long history of different init systems over the last 30 odd years, <clears throat> but every one of them has been very um, easy to understand. Okay, Unix has this philosophy. So Linux came from Unix. So it was meant to be a kind of an open source version of this operating system called Unix. And it has a philosophy of the application does one thing, but does it really well. And so the init system kind of followed that process of like, I'm going to do this one thing and that's all that I'm going to do. System D came along and not only changed the way that you interact with how the applications start up, but it also is an umbrella for all kinds of things on your system that is that is beyond just simply starting services. And so on top of the fact that, um, you know, some of the people that have been around Linux a long time, like myself, didn't like the idea that like, especially at the beginning, there were a lot of bumps in terms of trying to figure out how do I migrate from my other init system to the system D thing when the applications themselves didn't come that way. So there was that. And then there's a, a uh, resistance to the idea that something is going to, we're going to move from one thing that does its thing really well to this umbrella project, which puts its fingers into everything. And that kind of violates that Unix philosophy. So what do you think, Noah? Was that a good summation? Yeah, I, I mean, here's the, here's the bottom line is this. If you worked in system administration prior to system D, it was, you were, you were, you were waiting for servers to reboot. After we made the migration to system D because of the ability to start individual things 
not necessarily dependent on other things and at the same time allow some things to wait. Like, for example, if you have a service that depends on networking, wait for the networking to get up. But other than that, be able to start other services. Boot up times went to seconds. And so you can like it. You can disagree with it. You can banter about the politics of it. But at the end of the day, <laughs> if you're a system administrator, system D saved you time. Every single week we open the show talking about the show is driven towards helping people do things on Linux that other people said couldn't be done. And nobody has exemplified that better in the video production space than Michael Pendleton. Joining me is our guest this hour. He is the owner and producer of Caution Glass Video Graphics uh, Company in Alabama. Welcome in, sir. Hey, no one, Steve. Thanks for having me, and happy Independence Day. Happy, happy Independence. Yeah, happy Independence Day. So I, I want to start with this. So you call yourself a creative. When did you first get into creative video production and the creative process, and, and what did that look like for you? Yeah, so that was, uh, it was a while ago. Uh, when I was about 10 years old is when I really started playing with cameras and stuff. And I always had a little fascination with, you know, the family video camera stuff when I was even younger than that. But uh, there's this movie called Chicken Run, and uh, we had that when I was a kid on VHS and watched this movie over and over again. And then I found out there's special features at the end of the at the end of the credits. And then I saw how they got to make these chickens come to life. And it was so, so cool to me. And so I started playing with stop motion animation on a uh, Super 8 um, or not film Super 8, but the the digital tape kind of camera. And I just started playing with stop motion animation a little more and a little more. And then I started finding out there's other aspects to filmmaking and video. And, and it just really just tumbled from there, fell in love. Can you talk a little, so, so you, you, you fall in love and you really hone your art as a creative and you say, I'm going to step into this. This is what I'm going to do with my life. So you get a job at a TV station. Talk about what that was like, where you started and what your goals were. Yeah. So I, you know, um, being early twenties, you know, I was trying to get into the industry. It's a very tough industry to get into and you have to come to a lot of harsh realizations, you know, not everybody could be the next Steven Spielberg and stuff, but there's plenty of other opportunities and stuff within the creative world, within the professional world. And one of the ones that I saw, of course, was, uh, you know, working in television. And so I got a job at my local television station at the very base level. I was a director, um, which sounds, you know, like a high position, but you are the person switching and, and putting up graphics and working with a producer to make sure the show is flowing properly, um, telling the, the talent what they need to do and not do. And that was uh, a great entry level position stuff but within about three years i was able to work my way up i knew i wanted to get to the creative department and uh the only way i was able to get into the creative department was if i split my time between creative and production and so i was waking up at 3 a.m and getting to work by four and then the next half of the day i would work another four hours usually ended up being more like eight hours in the creative department and uh, from there, I worked my way up uh, within that creative department to becoming eventually the um, director of the creative department, the the manager, and uh, had a lot of a uh, had a lot of fun there. So, what sort of stuff did you uh, oversee at your time there? Like, um, what kind of uh, projects did you think were very interesting? Yeah. So, in the creative room, you had basically two different roles. You had to serve the station, and you had to serve clients. And when it comes to serving the station, you know, it was promotions, um, branding, you know, the thanks for watching this channel kind of stuff. And that was a lot of fun. I, I definitely gravitated towards the promotion side. It was really cool. But one of the coolest things about it was in my time there, uh, a general manager had come in and decided we need to rebrand the station. The brand was getting a little old. And so I led the rebranding process of that television station um, from start to finish. And I was even doing things like uh, we needed to revamp our studio, but we couldn't re completely redo it. I 3D modeled the entire studio inside of Blender and we would get onto video calls. The 
pretty much all the managers and pretty much every single week we would go through this 3d model and i would be updating things in real time for them inside a blender and they could see what it was going to look like and what was one of the one of the prouder moments of my career in television was i put out a rendering of that of that studio and i held it up in front of the final studio the finished studio and it looked almost exactly like it and so that was a lot of fun but then the other side, of course, was commercials. And this was, you know, your actual uh, television commercials, working with clients and everything like that. And so we we did a lot of those. Uh, sometimes we were making upwards of a commercial a day. <laughs> and there was other times where it was even as busy as making 10 commercials a week. So that was, that was very, very busy. Tell me about uh, the best commercial that you think you've made. Oh, um, definitely the, there's, there's, the ones that I probably think are the best ones I made, and then uh, there's the ones that definitely stick out for certain reasons. And one of them, uh, I did win the best commercial in the state of Alabama, um, and it was through the Alabama Association of Broadcasters, and this was in 2021. Um, I, I made this commercial, we submitted it, and it took the award, and I was, I was very proud of that fact, so that one definitely sticks out you use uh in terms of tooling to to actually accomplish that i mean that's a that's a huge thing that's that's not some small little award so what did you what did you do um and what tools did you use and how long did it take you to to master something like that yeah it's uh funny you asked that steve uh, so when we shot the commercial it was before lockdown had happened everything was going on and, and everybody's talking about this thing called covid and stuff and we we shot the commercial and about two to three days later we got told you got to go home and at this tv station of course we're using pretty much an entire windows pipeline um i built the machines there they were uh core i9s uh 1070 ti's and stuff like that and they were running windows 10 uh awful machines because of windows 10. <laughs> but uh we were all sent home and so i said uh well i was offered a desktop computer i could take one home with me and i said i've got my own machine at home and it was one that i had built and was running uh at the time i guess it would have been Ubuntu uh, 20.04 and I was using DaVinci Resolve. And so that commercial that won best commercial in the state of Alabama, uh, it, it may have actually been in 2020. Um, that commercial was made using an entire Linux pipeline. Can you talk a little bit about the creative department? Were they using Linux? Did you introduce Linux or open source tools to them? And if so, what was the reception? Yeah, so when I got into that department, uh, as you know, not the not the director or anything, I was um, basically the whole department was using an Adobe pipeline. It was Premiere Pro, it was After Effects, Photoshop, you know, all of that. And I had been using DaVinci Resolve for a while in my own time, and I just knew it was a better product because I mean, I get in there and I'm I'm using Premiere Pro, and it's just awful. It's sluggish. It's crashing. It's terrible. Um, and too much stuff to go into, honestly, for this conversation, because there was, there was some pretty crazy stuff with it. So when I became the, the manager, I switched us over to using DaVinci Resolve. And I had also been using GIMP for probably close to a decade at this point. And so I also got us onto GIMP in certain places. So like when we had to rebrand the station, we had to remake weather graphics and all kinds of things. And that was all done using pretty much just GIMP. Um, and of course, Blender was the was definitely the go to 3D modeling location of choice. And, uh, and and yeah, so there was not any Linux in that department. I was trying to get us to the point of switching over, but they used very antiquated servers. Um, the amount of antiquated technology in a local TV station is, is, is almost shocking. <laughs> and so they were using servers that required a certain interface application. And the last time it had been updated, I think it said supports uh, Windows 7. And we were on Ooh. Windows 10. So there was basically no way that we could interface with these servers using Linux, at least to my knowledge. That was all underneath the engineering department. And I was not able to touch that very, very what, well. What was the reception of the people that you work with? So you introduced these new tools. So maybe you hadn't switched them over to Linux, but unbeknownst to them, you were putting tools under underneath them that they that could follow them to any platform of their choice. So whether they were whether they chose in the future to work on Windows or Mac or Linux, they were going to be able to leverage these tools to their full potential. And oh, by the way, it sounds like the tools that you were introducing them to didn't require subscriptions, didn't require licensing, and so you just introduced them to a new tool and allowed them to leverage it to their full potential. What was the reaction? 
Yeah, so the creative industry is very opinionated. Um, you know, I, sh I know that a lot of industries and stuff like that are very opinionated, but the creative industry can be probably more than most. Um, a lot of these students come out, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty technical person. Um, but I'm not a, a tech guy. You know, I love technology. I built my own computers. I love installing Linux. I love, I love running these things. And I, and I do enjoy figuring things out, but I'm a creative. And a lot of the people who come into this industry, they're purely creative. They don't know anything about the tools they're using. And a lot of them will come out of college or even high school, you know, AV departments or something like that. And they're pretty much told you have to be using the Adobe Creative Suite in order to be considered a professional. Well, what they don't know is pretty much the entire film industry is not even using Adobe and they're using other tools instead. Um, so when it comes to people getting into that department, uh, it's definitely, it was definitely a shock. You know, the, the, a lot of them were like, oh, I don't know how to use this. I don't know how to use these tools. And we would use tricks like in DaVinci Resolve, you can make the key mapping to be just like Premiere. And that would help a little bit. Um, but it was definitely a hard thing for, for some people. And some of them looked like I was the guy using the, you know, half-baked, you know, two-bit piece of software. And uh, pretty quickly, though, they started realizing, wait, my timeline is a lot faster. This renders in a quarter of the time. It actually uses the GPU. It's stable. Like, it, it very quickly became uh, a no-duh sort of, a sort of uh, decision for them as well. So I want to pick up on that because um, I'm not sure how many people know, but the first job that I had out of, by the time that I had finished off in, in school, I went to work in the movie studio at IMAX. And so I supported 300 artists, uh, very similar in what you're talking about, but we were in the movie studio. And so we used things like Nuke and Shake and everything ran on Linux. So you're talking, you, you mentioned about how you're like these, these uh, people coming out of college, walking into tooling and having no idea what was happening because the, um, they were told to use a specific tool and then they get out in the real world and it turns out that that's not necessarily the case. Um, so I have some experience with this idea of uh, dealing with other places that you had to interchange formats and stuff like that. So like, how did you... For us as a as a movie studio, it's fairly easy because you can you can kind of export shots as you know some form of raw image format in order to exchange stuff. But how did you handle uh, having to interop with different things? So you've you've basically migrated the software to something other than what they're used to, and now you have to try and deal with like I'll call them the format wars. How did you deal with that? Yeah, so that's funny. And one really cool background, by the way. I mean, we got to go watch Oppenheimer together or something like that. Um, but yeah, so that's been something that's been always very interesting is, you know, luckily we've got a lot more standards, I think, probably than uh, today than, you know, it, even 10 years ago. You know, a lot of things have standardized around H.264 um, and all these different formats. But it was interesting. So I've got one specific story that was actually before I got into the creative department. Um, I was doing a little bit of freelance on the side and everything, trying to build up my resume so that I could get into the creative department. And I worked with this one group of people and they were a lot of, you know, very fresh out of college people. They were working with Adobe pipelines and stuff. And I'm over here on my Dell Precision M4700. I'm running, uh, I think I was running CentOS at the, at the time and I've got uh, Lightworks Pro. Um, and so I'm running Lightworks and I'm doing all the editing for this project. And then they're like, Hey, can you send that to me for, um, color grading? And so I send them this project and I can't remember what the original, uh, format was that I used. It was, it was a good intermediate or codec. It might not have been ProRes, but it was something similar. It was a while ago. I can't remember, but they started coming back and they're like, Hey, Adobe won't open this. And I'm like, excuse me, uh, this is a pretty standard format. And they're like, yeah, it, Premiere won't open this. And I was like, okay, for one, you're doing color grading Premiere. Um, I don't know if that's brave or stupid, <laughs> but uh, it was just kind of a back and forth. And eventually they said, send it to me as MP4. And I'm like, MP4 is not a great intermediary codec. And it just started this whole debate about what software I use versus what software they use. And it was all because of the intermediary codec. And Basically, what I had to come to the conclusion of is that every system uses things differently. And I, kind of a couple of years later, I finally got a, a good redemption of that story where I was working with another cable company and I shot a commercial for them freelance and I was using Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera. 
and that thing shoots black magic raw. Well, I hand it to these guys, and they're on Mac using Final Cut Pro, and they can't open my files. <laughs> and so I'm like, what are you talking about? This is black magic raw. It's a very standard file. And so I had to go through and transcode all of those files to a to a to a worthwhile format but basically the moral of the story and i hope this answers your question is it's easy as a linux user to suddenly get onto the defense when somebody asks you why are you exporting as that format well what you got to remember is every platform has their own different things and everybody builds their pipelines around their own formats and their own systems and so don't don't cower and don't don't feel bad that you're using something that's not what they're using instead be like well that's not the system i use let me make it work for your system. Does that answer your question, Steve? Yeah, it, it sounds like you had uh, some interesting... When in the movie studios, you don't send each other like MPEGs or anything like that. You basically send them the raw images and you, then you send them the audio and you expect them to mix it on the other side. <clears throat> or at least you did when I was doing it. So we had we had different challenges, but it sounds like... Uh, it. Your stories sound very familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, that's one of many stories. And yeah, while we're not, uh, one of the big things is definitely timeline export. So in DaVinci Resolve and Premiere Pro, um, in Avid and everything like that, you have all these different intermediary uh, timeline exports, such as XML, AAF. I'm sure you're familiar, Steve. And it's one of those things where you're exporting just the timeline data. It's a markup language, things like that. It tells you where clips are, where they're cut, things like that. But there's no actual video included in this. And it can be hard when you're trying to work with somebody who's on Premiere and they're like, hey, send me that project. And you have to send them an XML or you have to send them an AAF. And it doesn't actually include any of the effects. It doesn't include the color grading, things like that. Uh, and so, yeah, the challenges can be very real. I want to talk a little bit about hardware and I want to be clear here. No detail is too small. I would love to know everything from the lens right up until the, the brand of flash drive you're using to deliver the deliverable or whatever, right? Talk to me about your hardware. Talk to me about what a project looks like. What are you using for capture? What are you using for the hardware to do the video editing? We'll get into the software stack in a little bit, but hardware wise, if you were, as you're choosing, what are some of the lessons you've learned? What works well with Linux, where has some room for improvement? Well, we don't have enough time to go over everything. That's for sure. I could talk about this for five, six hours easy. But, um, you know, what we're using for capture is a, is a wide variety. You know, I was using uh, Sony uh, mirrorless cameras for a good little while, um, Panasonic. And uh, lately, uh, actually within the past few years, the company even started using pretty much Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras. And so we've got a Pocket Cinema camera 4K. We've got a 6K Pro, um, and, and they work really well under Linux. You know, DaVinci Resolve, uh, if, if I recall correctly, DaVinci Resolve was even started as a Linux-first application. And so you can use Blackmagic cameras very well underneath Linux. Blackmagic RAW is a fantastic codec. Um, lenses, we use, you know, Rokinon Cineprimes. We use Sigma Art lenses. Uh, there's a whole mixture of lenses. I'm, I'm uh, very... Some people would call me maybe an old soul. I love a lot of old things, uh, but I love adapting old things to new technologies and stuff. So one of the things I love is I've got a lot of vintage lenses. Some old Canon FD lenses, some Sigma, or sorry, um, a Soligore lens, Yashica, a bunch of old lenses that I love to adapt to my new cameras. And um, man, uh, we use uh, SanDisk CFast cards. I've tried it. Uh, I, I considered using Angelbird but they have not a very good track record. So I just couldn't pull the trigger. Uh, don't want to risk it with something like that. But <laughs> my desktop is a uh, Thelio Mira and it's got the 13,700 uh, 13, K uh, CPU in it. And I've got a RTX 3080 in it now. Uh, and it's just a beast of machine uh, DDR5, only 32 gigs of RAM, but that does plenty for what I need right now. Um, and we've got a bunch of other machines, um, one of which I built and was my previous machine. Uh, yeah, so uh, in particular, I mean, I've got a lot of equipment. You know, we've got, like right now, the audio board I'm using is a Ranger Q802. Um, my typical uh, audio setup is like the Sennheiser MKE 600 for the shotgun mic. Our lav mics will be Zoom F2s. Uh, there's so much equipment, honestly, in this industry that it's hard to mention it all right now, but that's some of the highlights, maybe. 
I would love to do a five-hour episode and talk about gear. I'm not going to lie. Um, hey, let's do it. <laughs> uh, can you t- tell me a little bit about hardware switchers? So this is something I'm a bit conflicted on. On one hand, it seems like it makes good sense to me to get everything into a purpose-built, you know, uh, like toaster-like device. On the other hand, it seems like maybe I'm limiting myself because I don't get to take advantage of all of the things that software switchers can do. What are your thoughts? So I've got the A10 Mini, uh, and it's a great little great little board. And it's funny because on the hardware side, of course, as a Linux user, there definitely is that hesitation when you click Add to Cart. You know, you're always like, "Will this actually work with my setup?" And with the A10 Mini, there was definitely that. Um, but I've never really let that hesitation stop me. Um, usually, when I buy something, it works with Linux. And if it doesn't work with Linux um, with their proprietary software, it works with some kind of open source alternative. And the A10 Mini specifically is a great example of that. So the A10 Mini, uh, the particular version I have is the HDMI version. They do have an SDI version. Uh, But the A10 Mini has four HDMI inputs, and it also can output a uh, multi-view. So you can actually just HDMI to a to a TV or something like that, and you've got your entire multi-view up there, and you can get some audio preview, things like that. It's a great little board, even without plugging it up to a computer. And the output from a USB-C cable will give you basically like a webcam feed. So I've actually taken that A10 Mini and put it into Zoom, and I've had like a, a, a cinema camera recording my Zoom call, <laughs> you know? So you've definitely got good functionality there, but the ATEM software does not work on that. And that's one of the things that excites me about open source and the flexibility of it. Um, for instance, there is the Open Switcher project for the A10 Mini. And the Open Switcher project is being head up by, let me make sure I get his name right, uh, Martin Brom. And it's such a cool piece of software that basically allows you to have the full ATEM control through an open source project. And it's not fully production ready, but you can input the ATEM Mini directly into OBS. So for me, having that hardware tactile feeling right underneath your hands is, is a lot better than software when you can do it. Um, but yeah, software is not a bad way to go. Have you considered things like the stream deck, which would give you a tactile feel to doing software switching? And does that appeal to you at all? It does. In fact, the stream deck is something that I have debated buying for a long time. And when I first started looking at it, there definitely was not very good Linux support for it. Um, but again, the open source community stepping up, building great tooling around it. It looks like it's improved a lot. So the Stream Deck is something I probably will invest in in the next you know, few months to a year and just kind of play with it, see how it works with OBS and the Linux stack overall. But yes, it definitely appeals to me. So tell me a little bit about, we, we talked about the hardware. What kind of software are you running at Caution Glass? So for our NLE, we use DaVinci Resolve Studio across the board. Um, It's fantastic on Linux. It's very stable, very fast. And uh, the beta right now has a lot of really cool tools that are are honestly groundbreaking. Um, And so that's our our editor as well as our main visual effects compositing software. Um, We also use Blender for CGI. I'm pretty much the only one who does use it because anybody else on my team can't really use (laughs) Blender. But uh, I love that tool. I've used it for a long time, and it just means a lot to me, honestly, on even a personal level, because it allowed me to do so much when I was a young kid playing with this stuff. And uh, we also use uh, GIMP for our quote-unquote Photoshop-type work. We use Krita every once in a while um, when it's working with Photoshop files. Um, only Office is our Office application. We have to use Handbrake to transcode. Um, Shutter Encoder, by the way, anybody listening, please check out Shutter Encoder. It is an amazing project that can transcode even to ProRes, DNX HD, all kinds of formats. And it is a fantastic piece of software that I highly recommend anybody in this industry looking into. Um, but we use uh, Kubuntu. Uh, 2204 right now is kind of our primary operating system. On my Thaleo, I did leave it as Pop! OS, but that that's most of our software stack. Of course, there's a lot of piddly tools here and there, um, that I, I but I love using the whole thing, and it, it just is so easy to use. Are you using uh, Debs, or are you using some sort of universal packaging for the stuff that you're installing? Oh, I'm all in on Flatpak, baby. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> dev, dev files and everything are great. You know, using the, the native installers are, are, are good when, when that's what you have. But honestly, a big important piece for me is 
bringing more software to Linux, specifically within the creative world. And I think that Flatpak has opened up a lot of that. And we're just now maybe starting to see some of the opportunities that Flatpak can bring to the Linux ecosystem for creative uh, software. So I'm all in on Flatpak. I think it's great. I, what I think is particularly good for studios is the fact that uh, it bundles everything together. So like your drivers get bundled in. A lot of people 100%. are think that this is a, a waste of hard drive space. But when you're talking about, so I have an application, doesn't really matter what it is, but it needs a specific set of uh, tie into the to the graphics card, which means that every time I run an update, I have to rebuild this silly thing from source or it, it crashes. And I've, I can't tell you how many times where I've gotten on a client call, fire the thing up and it crashes because I forgot to rebuild it from source because my my graphics driver is updated. So Flatpak definitely <laughs> solves a big chunk of that. As soon as I discovered that, um, I switched over immediately. So I imagine it's the same thing with the creative stuff you've got. Absolutely. There's a great example, and I wish people would really listen to this. There's a great application uh, a long time ago called Trelby, and it was a script writing application. They It, it was kind of an abandoned project, and uh, it, it no longer was receiving updates. Well, it's broken on Linux now, at least to the last of my testing. I can't get it to launch on Linux using the dev files or anything like that. But my buddy who's on Windows 10, he can still use Trelby using the Windows installer that was made for Windows 7. And Flatpak can bring a lot of that long-term um, life cycle into Linux applications where dependencies might have been broken otherwise. You know, Micah, there's going to be somebody out there that it's just it's, it's a different bar to when you're doing something with your own system or your own videos and when you're trying to please a client, right? Because when you're trying to please a client, it means you're held to the exact same bar as all of your competition. So what would you say to those who say, oh, you really, you have to be using Adobe. You have to be using, uh, you know, Final Cut Pro. You have to be using a Mac if you really want to be serious in, in the video world. What would you tell people like that, given your success uh, with, uh, with Caution Glass? Well, I mean, a big thing, I mean, you could sound kind of, uh, I don't know, you could sound a little artsy and say something like, it's not about the paintbrush, it's about the artist, you know? But I would like to say that, Today's tool is tomorrow's trash. You know, what, what you're using today won't always be the standard. And so you got to be open to trying new things. And when it comes to like Adobe and stuff like that, it, that's kind of a recent advent. You know, you look back in the early days and Final Cut Pro and things like that were, were definitely the dominant standards. So especially today, open standards and things like that are, are so prevalent that you don't have to stay on some proprietary system, you know, and when it comes to Adobe versus uh, versus uh, DaVinci Resolve or any other any other option, the the functionalities of them are very often the same. Because as much as I love DaVinci Resolve and using it on Linux and stuff like that, you can do the same thing in Premiere Pro. You just got to get used to it. So I would just say you need to take a little bit of a leap of faith, and not just the first time it, it gets hard, you quit. Could you talk a little bit more about non-linear uh, editors? What, what would you recommend? Where do you think they, they stack up and fall down? Shotcut, OpenShot, what is your choice? I mean, obviously, DaVinci Resolve is what you've chosen for your business, but I'm sure you keep your finger on the pulse of all of them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I check an eye out, uh, keep an eye out on the uh, KDN Live website all the time. I'm checking out Shotcut every once in a while. I actually used KDN Live not that long ago on a little project just because I wanted to play with it again. And it's, it's a really hard one, Noah. It really is because I want to go to an open source alternative. I want to use Kden Live full-time or whatever the, the proper option is. But what's so difficult about it is, honestly, it's, it kind of comes down to some fragmentation, potentially. I don't really know what the, what the, what the hard part is about this. But GIMP, GIMP is great. You can use it all day long in a professional environment. There's no issues with it. Same thing with Blender. Blender is used at the Hollywood level. There are studios after studio using Blender. But the Linux 
nonlinear editor scene is really difficult. I love Kden Live. I used it for a long time. And anything I say here is nothing against the amazing developers who have spent so much time and, and, and still put so much effort into these projects. And they are still amazing tools. Go out and use them. If you don't want to use DaVinci Resolve, absolutely try Kden Live, Shotcut, Olive. There's so many great other ones out there. Flowblade. Uh, but there's so many options out there that I feel like a lot of the attention is getting split between all these different projects and we're missing out on things that we really need, like stability, absolutely number one, speed, a very close second. You know, there's a lot of speed and stability that is lacking from all of these options. And then also things like support for raw, you know, um, Blackmagic raw um, should, I'm not a developer at all, but I, I believe it should be able to be integrated into some of these softwares. And, you know, you need the ability to actually use these file formats uh, inside of your software. So it, it, it's not ready for a professional environment for me because I have to have something that's stable, fast, and can read all these formats. But I would, I would really love to see these, uh, these open source alternatives get there. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. I was working on a video project a few weeks ago, and the footage came to me from a RED 1. Um, so it's an older RED camera, but at the end of the day, it's still a RED. And came with RED RAW, and I went to RED site, and sure enough, they have a package, or a script rather, that installs some software that supposedly could convert RED footage into an intermediary that I could use to edit. And no word of a lie, it just crashed my entire system. Like I ran it and I, when I, it, it, the hard lock, the entire system, when I tried to restart it, it just came back with a black cursor. And I was like, well, guess that software isn't going to work. Have you noticed that in the industry? Whereas you have like, so Blackmagic has their version of raw, red has their version of raw. Are we getting into a place? Cause on one hand, these companies have, I mean, they're kind of at the mercy of they're giving you access to raw sensor data. So to a degree that is their proprietary technology. And I get that at the same time, are we ever going to get to a place where there is a standard and where do you see the limitations of open source software in that realm? So we've had open standards before, you know, uh, cinnamon DNG and stuff. I think if I recall correctly, was an open standard. Um, it definitely was implemented very widely uh, and nobody wanted to use it because it was, recording every single frame as an individual photo and, and things like that. It was just a very cumbersome uh, thing to work with. And believe me, the raw debate is huge within the camera industry right now. Red owns a patent for internal raw recording and Nikon is now fighting it very heavily. And so it's a, it's a giant debate right now as far as in recording internal raw to your camera. Blackmagic gets around this because technically it debayers the footage after it's been recorded or after it leaves the sensor, I believe is, is, is the way that it's, it's kind of muddy, but yeah, so when it comes to raw usability on Linux, if you're using DaVinci Resolve or Lightworks, Lightworks was actually the first uh, third-party video editor that implemented Blackmagic raw support. Um, so Linux was fully supporting it from pretty much from the get-go. Uh, and and so if you're on you know DaVinci Resolve, Lightworks, or Premiere Pro or or something like that, it's not a problem. Um, Apple just hasn't implemented uh, it into Final Cut Pro because they come out with <laughs> ProRes raw. And and ProRes RAW, of course, is directly in competition and stuff like that. So there's a lot of things going on there that you know we don't need to get into. But I do see uh, no settling on a on a standardized format. I don't see us settling on a standardized format anytime soon. Um, but I do see support still being widely available if you're on an editor like DaVinci Resolve or Lightworks or something like that. Where do you see some opportunity for growth in the Linux market? So, for example, I might ask you a little bit about plugins. What do you think about plugins and where are they at? How well do they work and where could we improve? Yeah, so plugins is a very uh, fascinating dilemma on Linux because plugins uh, typically, specifically in visual effects, you use something called OpenFX or OFX plugins. And these are an open standard that you can use across software. And a lot of plugin uh, creators make their plugin in OpenFX. However, a big however, is they use a third-party application to manage the licenses and communication with the software and stuff like that. So for instance, in the case of FX Home, they have the Ignite plugins, I believe is what they're called. And they use a uh, dedicated software that manages your license, that manages uh, interfacing with the actual application that's using it, but it's an OpenFX plugin. So technically it should work on DaVinci Resolve, um, and I believe Lightworks also uh, supports OFX now. Um, so it should work on a lot of these applications, but they don't. 
And so that's kind of where I'm also hoping that like Flatpak or Snap or something could step in because now that you can develop your your OFX installer for just one simple uh, for for one simple standard. Now there are a lot of other app, uh, plugins that are definitely out there. So like VST plugins for audio production, I believe are pretty well supported on Linux. Um, but there is things like uh, oh, let me see, I, I wrote it down. Yeah, Reactor. Reactor is a suite of plugins that is incredible, and uh, and it's allowed me to work with 360 video off of you know things like uh, the Insta 360, and it it works very well on Linux. You just drag and drop it right in there, but it's also a free application, and they don't, if I'm not mistaken, it's open source as well. But you just drop it in, and it works. And so what we need to do is find a way to work with these open effects um, plugin manufacturers and get them to integrate directly. Uh, into Linux and something like an open standard such as Flatpak or Snap would work very well for that, I think. I love it. Michael Pendleton, he is the owner and operator of Caution Glass, a video graphics and branding company and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Micah, I appreciate all the knowledge that you're willing to share and the time that you've taken. We'll definitely get you back. I'm sure there's, like you say, there's probably another five episodes we could do to, to dig into all the rest of us. So we'll get you back in the program soon. Would love to. Would love to. Thank you, Noah and Steve. All right. Music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. You can catch all of the show notes, everything that Micah recommended to you. It will be available to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Asknoahshow.com.